right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here, back-ish, back adjacent, I'd say, from uh, a paternity leave, hoping to get back into the content game, easing my way back into the content game. But I have an interview coming here shortly with Billy Walters. Billy has wrote a book recently. It is called Gambler's Secrets from a Life at Risk. We cover that uh, in detail in this interview. I would say in great detail, but I don't think we could have possibly covered his life story and how it relates to the golf world in the uh, full detail that it probably requires. I do recommend the book. It has been a fascinating read. If you like gambling stories, oh my gosh, does this guy have them? Uh, a, a life of just pool halls and blackjack, baccarat, roulette, you name it. Uh, he's got stories from interesting characters he's met along the way, organized crime leaders and uh, setting up shop in Vegas and a betting operation that wrapped all the way around the world. Uh, we talked a little bit about some of the some of that stuff, but man, there's a lot more details in there, and I wanted to keep this as as tied into the golf world as possible. Obviously, we talk a lot of Phil Mickelson, and there's been the uh, the excerpt from the book that's been released. We talk about their relationship and and uh, how that fell apart, and what how Billy ended up in in prison, and how Phil had something to do with that. So, I want to give a shout out to our friends at Roback. As you can see, if you're watching this on YouTube, I got my favorite hoodie on the green one. It's too hot for hoodies here in Florida, but I've just been indoors the whole time. So they've been keeping me company uh, these last few weeks as we've just been chilling at home. You know Roback. These guys understand quality. Best way to describe it, best fit, best feel. Summer is in full force. Their performance polos are fantastic. They have a bunch of USA-themed stuff that is great for all the American-themed holidays, solids and stripes. Uh, and then, of course, the Roback performance hoodies are the stretchiest, softest hoodies in golf. If you want to be comfortable and relaxed, on the golf course, out on the town, or just laying around at home, wear a rowback hoodie. Uh, I tried my best to keep these things in rotation. I've got about 12 of them, and I still don't think it's enough. And lastly, the performance Q-zips are a game changer. Nothing beats rocking a rowback Q-zip for an early round of golf. They're soft, stretchy, comfortable, and they are difficult to take off. You can't go anywhere without sp uh, spying that dog logo that you see up in the corner or the two-stripe bridge on the back of Roback Clothing. You can use code NLU at Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order through the end of this week. That's R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. 20% off polos, Q-zips, hoodies, and more with code NLU. Here is our interview with Billy Walters. All right, this book has been highly anticipated by the golf community, I would venture to say, after finishing it. The hype has been met, and it'll be obvious to people once they've heard this interview or once they've read the book, but Billy, why did you want to write this book? Well, I wanted to write it for a number of reasons. I know I can help a lot of people who come from a similar background that I do that have faced addiction in their life and, you know, had a lot of ups and a lot of downs, and, uh, you know, Everyone who goes through life, they have challenges, and I wanted to share some of those that I've, I've experienced and how I've dealt with those, and hopefully I'll help others. Sports betting uh, is kind of my dream come true, so to speak. I started betting sports at a very early age, and uh, back when I began betting sports, uh, sports bettors were thrown into the same pile as, as bookmakers, and uh, there was a perception, an ignorant perception, that you know, somehow or another, we must be criminals or something. And, uh, you know, we finally got to point in time and now where gambling is legal in the majority of the United States. So I'm not getting any younger. And I wanted to share everything in the world that I know uh, about 
sports handicapping, sports betting. I wanted to share that with sports fans. So I wouldn't have sold this information for $30 million 10 years ago, but I'm 10 years older and I want to share this with sports fans and uh, it's my legacy, so to speak. So that was my motivation for writing uh, sports side of it. And then the most recent chapter in my life is I was convicted in the Southern District of New York for insider trading. And, and that has been uh, misportrayed, uh, the facts surrounding that. And I, I wanted uh, an opportunity to set the record straight in regards to that. So there were a combination of reasons I did it. I didn't do it for any monetary considerations. Any money I earn from this is all going to charity. Those are my motivations in general. Well, I, as a lot of golf fans probably did or will do when they get this book, as I, I went to the table of contents, I looked up the Phil chapter, read that one first, and then worked my way backwards into it. So I've read that one twice, and how Phil Mickelson has intertwined uh, with your life is 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 a story I'm sure we'll get to. But uh, it was interesting to read it that way and then to come back through and read the whole book and reach that chapter, which uh, it, it kind of tells the story a little bit about how you got there, how how things went down, and I would struggle to ask this question of how how would you explain your background because it's an extremely long story, but how would you, I'm sure you've you've made a living out of uh, succinctly describing your background. How would you describe uh, the, the sequence of events that you know led to how you're sitting here today? Well, uh, you know, you, you just shared with me that you brought a new member to your family. Uh, we, you know, we all talk about formative years and how someone is basically, they're pretty much, uh, the direction they're going to be in is kind of created at a very young age. I was born and raised in a small rural town in uh, central Kentucky. I lost my father at a young age and, uh, and my mother left. I was raised by a grandmother. And luckily I could have had four parents. So I couldn't have had a better, better role model. First places I remember going outside of my home were a Baptist church. Uh, <clears throat> I went to, you know, went to Baptist church Three times each Sunday, I went to prayer meeting on Sunday night, and I went to a Christian youth organization on Saturday night. Uh, my grandmother worked a couple of jobs, and uh, <clears throat> there was no daycare in this little town I was raised in. My uncle owned the pool room, and uh, so I was left at my uncle's pool room, and uh, he's put, he put up Coca-Cola cases around the back pool table and uh, gave me a pool cue, and he went back to work, and I started shooting pool at the age of four. So my life consisted of, you know, Baptist church, uh, being baptized at six and being in a pool room. And I learned a whole lot about life in a pool room. I learned, uh, I actually started playing pool. Uh, I played, uh, first time I gambled, I played a game of penny nine ball when I was six years old. Uh, but the things I learned in a pool room were about, you know, being able to play under heat, uh, understanding how to negotiate and, uh, Realizing that sometimes uh, your best friend will, uh, you know, will dump you. Uh, if you take, you know, the wrong guy for a partner, you could get dumped. So those were the things that uh, kind of formed me as a person. And uh, I like to think that although I'm 77 years old, I think those are my core principles today. My grandmother taught me that your words, your bond, make a commitment, you honor it. Those, uh, like I say, those are the core principles that I live by today. Well, and eventually we get, you know, to a part, as far as I've known you uh, over the years through through media and through through stories has been this legendary gambler that has a, a great system for betting sports and all that. And I guess I was a little surprised to read the book to see the path to getting there was not a straight line. And uh, I, I lost track in the course of reading it how many times you were uh, up seven figures to losing it all, up seven figures again, losing it all, up seven figures. It's somewhere along the way, 
you, you learned something or you formalized the way that you approached what you call a, a life at risk. And uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us, tell us a little bit about that path. Well, it's a rags to riches story and it's uh, over uh, not only once, but it's a rags to riches story again. I've, I've been broke uh, over a hundred times in my life and uh, the, uh, the book, it shares those experiences uh, to how I, you know, at one time I was highly addicted to gambling. Uh, it controlled, uh, I, I couldn't control my thoughts or I, I didn't make good sound solid decisions. And as a result, it brought a lot of pain into my life. But from the time I came to this world, uh, gambling really appealed to me, risk taking did. And some people think I'm fairly resilient. So uh, I just kept fighting and kept fighting and never gave up. And they say smart people make a mistake. They don't repeat it the second time. Well, I must not have been smart because I made a, I made the same mistakes multiple times, but eventually uh, I've got to the point to where there were certain things in my life, the addiction. I ended up getting married 47 years ago to an incredible lady. And uh, so there were a number of things in my life that happened that, uh, that finally turned me from uh, someone who was chasing success to someone who actually uh, became successful. The sports handicapping part of it is uh, I've been on golf, uh, you know, the major tournaments uh, for a number of years. To see golf, you know, where you can bet on it now and you can bet on it legal from an app, uh, being able to share, you know, the concepts uh, that I use to be able to handicap golf, you know, look, you know, I, as I state in a book, outside of work, uh, golf has been, that's the only hobby I've ever had. Almost every friend I have, either directly or indirectly, came from golf. Uh, so, but getting from where I came from in Kentucky at a real age to where I ended up in Nevada, in Las Vegas, the gaming capital of the world, and actually turning something around that uh, brought a lot of pain and sorrow in my life from time to time, and actually being considered fairly successful at it is, uh, uh, it's all in the book. And, and, and again, I like autobiographies. I don't like ones that are vanity books. I think when you read the book, you'll see it's an extremely honest uh, portrayal of my life. Yeah, I didn't walk away from it thinking, uh, man, I, it, I didn't have envy of it. It wasn't a, uh, you know, necessarily an aspirational tale at times. You you you, you profile and you you document uh, a lot of these ups and downs. And my heart was breaking every time you'd go to the blackjack table after a big sports win and and give it all up. And you are right with the marrying an amazing woman because it sounds like, you know, when you would come home with the news of, of the losses, it would be, okay, well, we'll get it back. It'll be fine. You know, it's funny how, how things work now. I guess I've only known the betting world from a, an information overload era, right? I can log online. I can see the trends of all the PGA Tour players or the NFL teams. I can get DVOA stats on the NFL teams and and all that. But it wasn't always like that. And you profile a little some of the things that are archaic now. You can give the secrets away now, but now that uh, all the information's out there. But how you compiled information back in the day. And for the listeners that haven't read it yet, can you give us a sense of, of what your team was like and what the operation was like all the people working for you, both to place the bets, to gather the information, you know, kind of when you turn the corner into making this a, a very profitable venture for you. Can you give, give us an idea of what that was like? Well, when I lived in Kentucky prior actually to moving to Las Vegas, I was betting sports there along with, I was booking sports at the time too. I was dealing indirectly with a guy named Mike Kent. I realized that his handicapping was better than mine. I had a pencil piece of paper and he had a computer. But although he was 
good at predicting. He knew nothing nothing about betting. And, you know, the betting strategy is almost as important as the handicapping. So eventually uh, uh, in Kentucky, uh, I was arrested for bookmaking, which was, I was as guilty as I could be, and uh, moved to Las Vegas and decided to pursue a career as a full-time professional gambler. I didn't want to be involved with the bookmaking anymore. Fortunately, the case was adjudicated. It was expunged my record, uh, but the bottom line is it's factual. That's what happened. And I uh, moved to Las Vegas in 1982. It was uh, the best decision I ever made in my life, second to Mary and my wife, Susan. We moved to a city that was built by the gaming industry, and gamblers weren't unfairly judged by ignorant people. Uh, and what I did when I moved there, I was basically making the bets uh, that Mike Cannon handicapped, and uh, I was placing the bets. That was my job. And I put together an organized group of bettors in Las Vegas and then throughout the United States. And then in 1984, 1985, uh, you know, because we were the first group of organized bettors that were making a lot of money. Law enforcement at the time uh, had never seen or experienced anything like that. And they thought we were bookmakers and they thought we were affiliated with organized crime. Unfortunately, it led to us being raided in 1985 under that pretense. And then, you know, even more unfortunate in 1990, we were indicted with being part of a criminal conspiracy charged with essentially conspiring to bet. So my wife, uh, myself, and 13, 14 others went to federal court in Nevada, in Las Vegas, Nevada, the gaming capital of the world in 1992 to defend ourselves from betting on sports. And fortunately, the jury saw it for what it was, and we were exonerated, and, uh, and we went forward. But over the years, I realized in the mid-'80s that the advantage that Mike Kent had, it was eroding daily. You know, uh, other people or, you know, people, people we compete with are bookmakers and other betters. And everyone's getting smarter. Information was being more freely disseminated. And in order to stay ahead of the game, I realized that I had to get others involved besides Mike. And that's when I started recruiting other handicappers. And uh, because every handicapper that I worked with, eventually every one of them got where, you know, they lost their edge. Uh, Whatever edge they had, it, it had finally been erosion had taken care of it. They, they ran out of ideas. They ran out of angles. And uh, I worked with 25, 30 of the greatest handicappers in the world over that period of time, both quantitative and qualitative. But I knew their strengths. I knew their weaknesses. There would be times, that, like my camp, there would be times I would bet against him based upon all the information I had. And then I had another thing that I incorporated with it, and that was from a gambler standpoint that a lot of quantitative guys don't understand and a lot of experience also. So to see, like I say, legalized sports today, and uh, it's probably more competitive than it's ever been, but uh, I still think there's opportunities to be able to identify uh, edges. And I, I think even as difficult as it, as it is to lay 11 to 10, I think if you you know, you manage yourself correctly and you've got financial discipline, I, I think you can, uh, I think you can do that.
Can you give us an idea of, and you, you, you talk about in the book about how, how often your system iterates, right? And making many, many adjustments to it over the years as, you know, as you know, it's long since been said, NFL home teams have a three point advantage, right? Where you challenge that over the years or how things kind of have evolved. Can you give people an idea of, of what just like you use football a lot of, as an example in the book, an example of how you come up with what you see is a value play and how you place those bets, right? If you, you know, your success that you had eventually in this kind of flag some, you know, you get flagged in certain places and your limits are, are, uh, you know, enacted in certain places on certain accounts, which leads us to how this all has a big golf tie in, I think eventually. So can you give us kind of an example of how you're trying to get these bets placed, who is placing them for you, who the beards are that you referred to, uh, that, that there's this entire network of people that was blowing my mind. Well, uh, over the years, uh, I became a consistent winner, and smart bookmakers, they realized they wanted the information, they wanted it as quick as they could get it because they knew they were going to get it one way or the other. And uh, they wanted it directly, they wanted it uh, so they could get it early, they could make adjustments in their line, and they could take that information and actually make it earn money for them. A lot of bookmakers who, frankly, uh, didn't have that experience, they didn't have you know, what I would consider to be, they weren't very good bookmakers, let's just put it that way. And the people who they work for, their their position was, uh, we're only going to book to basically guys who are losers, and anyone who's a wise guy, we're not going to take his bet. Well, uh, 99% of the wise guys, uh, basically, it's not, not the wise guys, it's a sleepy bookmaker. So I'll give you an example. Right now, there's information is by the second. I mean, you know, whether you've got Twitter or whatever you've got. And if you have something that, that happens that's key, whether it be in a golf tournament or a football game or whatever, you have a, a player who's injured playing football, you have a situation with weather that comes up with golf that's unexpected and, you, you know, that affects people who play at a certain time of day or other things. And you got a material change. And if you're a bookmaker and you don't change your number accordingly and you're sitting there with a sleepy number, and some guy comes in and bets you because you're a sleepy bookmaker, is he a wise guy or are you a sleepy bookmaker? Well, on the other side of the coin, you go in and bet a bookmaker, and uh, let's say you make a bet on some guys in the golf tournament, and all at once uh, you make your bets three, four, five days early, and then the weather changes, you go over there and your guys tee off, and they're playing on horrible weather, you got no chance. Well, the bookmaker's not going to give you any refund. If you bet on a football game and your quarterback, after you bet on him, gets injured in practice, you're not going to get a refund. So the number of people that can win, that can win consistently betting major sports, I'm not talking about some obscure, you know, Australian soccer or something like that. I'm talking about the NFL, college football, college basketball, especially once the colleges go into conference, and golf. The number of people that can beat those are less than 1%. If you're afraid to book those sports, especially after the line's been out for a day or two or three days, if you're afraid to book those sports, you should not be a bookmaker. And if you're a publicly traded company and you're telling your shareholders the reason you're not earning the money you should make is because of these wise guys, you're misleading them. I'll tell you a story. In 1989, Jack Binion, who is the best friend I have in the world, who his family, uh, famous Binion family from Las Vegas, Nevada, Binion's Horseshoe. He opened up a sports book. And I told Jack, I said, Jack, I won't bet you if you don't want me to. He said, Billy, 
It's just the opposite. I want you to bet me first. I want you to bet me Monday morning. I want you to open me up. He said, because I'm going to get bet one way or the other. I bet him $25,000 a game on colleges. I bet him $50,000 a game on pro football. And the Horseshoe Sportsbook was the most profitable sportsbook per square foot in the state of Nevada. MGM, uh, when Jay Rood was there, 10, 12, 15 years. I could bet $50,000 a game on college football. I could bet $100,000 a game on pro football. They took my business, adjusted their lines accordingly. It was very profitable for them. Then you had certain bookmakers, well, I don't want his business. I can't beat it. Well, they're right about that part. But the part they didn't consider was they were probably going to get bet by 10, 15 other people on the same game. They didn't know where it came from. When the game started or whatever happened, yeah, they, they were end up real long on, on, on the wrong side of the game. So there's bookmaking, there's an art of bookmaking, and understand the whole key to bookmaking is writing volume, writing business, collecting the 11 to 10. If casinos took the position and a guy went in and played Baccarat for two or three nights in a row and he won, and they said, you're out of here, we don't want your business. Guy went to the crab pit. He got on a high hand for a couple, three nights. He won. Don't matter. We don't want him. We don't want your business. Same thing with with the blackjack pit. You know, casinos wouldn't be in business. But what the public doesn't really realize is the up until recently, the guys who run the casinos they they understand that there's going to be winners, there's going to be losers, and 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 that's the way the gambling business works. The casinos up until recently never looked at sports books as as a they looked at it as almost an accommodation of the customer. They didn't believe there was money to be made there. Now they realize there's a lot of money to be made there. And some of them are treating it differently. Some of them are treating it the same way as they did. They hired some people that have that type of philosophy that anyone wins, we're going to toss them out. And because what they're doing, because of their underperformance, when they're talking to the CEO or whomever, they're blaming it on some kind of wise guy instead of the fact that, frankly, they're a sleepy bookmaker and they're not very good. I think the legalization of sports has been great. I think I think it's, uh, but I think we have a long, long ways to go to actually achieve uh, what it could be. So backing up though to how you, you know, you you talk a lot about in the book about how you get accounts that are hot, right? Or you're trying to mask that it's you betting in certain places, right? For some of these books that maybe are not as welcoming to having your business. How, uh, what, what, what's the team look like that you formed to, and, and how do you disseminate information? How do you, are you at, uh, you know, back in a studio, crunching numbers, placing phone calls and going, can you tell us a little bit about how those, uh, those back in the day, maybe those bets were entered? Sure. The, uh, as time went forward, you always had bookmakers that wanted to do business, wanted to do business with you direct. That, that wasn't, that wasn't difficult. Then you had bookmakers who, if you won, whatever, it making a difference what the circumstances was, they tossed you out. So the whole key to my perspective, I wasn't interested in winning a small amount of money. I was only interested in winning a large amount of money. In order to do that, you had to be able to make large bets. Well, the way sports are today, there's a perception that you can bet a lot of money on sports. The reality is you can't, especially if you if you win or if you're dangerous. So I, I ended up uh, creating accounts throughout the U.S. and throughout you know, the world, so to speak. Well, not so to speak, throughout the world, primarily Europe. Uh, the other thing I realized is uh, a lot of bookmakers, if you gave them a lot of bets and the lines moved a certain way, uh, you know, the majority of them moved the way you bet, they were going to throw you out merely for that. So 
over the years uh, and some of the legal challenges I had, each and every time I, I changed what I was doing to make sure what we were doing was 100% legal. We had offices in Mexico, we had offices in the Bahamas, we had offices in England, and then, and then when I quit in 2016 to prepare for the trial in the Southern District of New York, I had an office in Panama City, Panama. We had 1,600 accounts there, and we had accounts with bookmakers all around the world. In some cases, I would have multiple accounts with the same bookmaker. And the reason for that is uh, instead of giving them 30 or 40 bets a week, I'd give them three bets a week under each account, three or four. And then based upon how those bets did, I would change the order that I would use them to bet with next week. So, you know, as an example, if uh, I gave a bookmaker three bets under one account and we won two out of the three and the lines all moved our way, I would make that account a red account, knowing, you know, if I continue to give him those kind of bets, they were going to throw the account out. So the next week, I would make sure that I use that accounts to bet on games where it appeared the line was going the other way, or I would use them to bet the opposite of, of side of games that, that I wasn't really going to bet. I was going to bet the other side. On the other hand, if someone went in and made three bets and they lost two of their three and the lines moved the other way, then they would go into the either the green or the yellow box, according to how they'd done for the year. Well, every week we had to update those 1,600 accounts and figure out which area they fell in. And of course, the whole goal was, was to maintain as many sports betting accounts and bet as much money as we could bet for the longest period of time we could do it in. And that actually was more work than handicapping the games. It was a tremendous amount of work. I almost felt like a, a CIA operator. So, <laughs> because it really was a cat and mouse game. I mean, the bookmakers are trying to throw us out. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, I'm looking to bet as much money as I can bet. So uh, in order to do that, I had to be able to, I had to be able to develop, but more importantly, uh, retain accounts for, for a period of time. All of that is leading up to exactly what you're saying. You know, you are limited by these limits in a lot of different places. And you you meet a man who uh, has some different limits than you have, right? And I want you to – can you tell us about how you uh, end up meeting the lefty golfer, Phil Mickelson, and uh, how your guys' relationship started? Well, I met him, and you're right. He did have bigger limits. Uh, but he was one of many over the years. I did partnerships with many people before him and after him. But I actually met him in 2006 at the AT&T at Pebble Beach. Uh, I had been fortunate, made a cut. Uh, I was playing with Freddie Jacobson. We got paired with uh, Phil and his partner, Steve Lyons, on a Sunday, and uh, we played golf together. And clearly, I knew who he was. I was a big fan of his, and uh, it became apparent to me he knew who I was. And uh, because we basically did nothing but discuss sports the entire uh, round of golf. And then I didn't see him again until 2008. I played at uh, the Wachovia Championship in Charlotte. I was invited down by the bank. I was a customer. I played in a pro-am with Jim Furyk. And uh, while I was there, when we got finished, I went into the locker room. I ran into Phil again. And uh, this time he brought up, he said, I understand you do partnerships. I said, yeah, I do partnerships. And, and explained to him if he had something, a place to bet I couldn't bet, or he could, I could bet more money than we could possibly do a partnership. He did, and we have uh, we developed a partnership for. We had a five-year betting partnership, and uh, we had a friendship that lasted eight, uh, lasted eight years. 
So how did the how does the partnership work, right? I mean, how is uh, he, he is partnering with you for the information I'm assuming you have, and for the the placing of the bets and the picks. You're partnering with him for the the limits that he has, the higher limits that he has. How, how did it work? How did the communications work, and kind of how did that relationship go, and how what kind of success or or, or not success did you guys enjoy? Well, it was a simple partnership. It was a 50-50 partnership. He put up his money, and I put up my money. Uh, we did all the betting. He had nothing to do with any selections. Uh, we were successful to the point that the bookmakers uh, cut those accounts off. They didn't. They wouldn't take bets from him anymore. He found another account. Well, he actually activated a, an account, an old account he'd had from before, and we bet it uh, for a period of time until uh, that account was finally shut off. And then he got involved uh, in something that concerned me. Uh, he was involved with two other men with something that had nothing to do with me and uh, which led to a money laundering investigation. A case came along with the investigation into the insider trading with uh, the Dean Foodstock in uh, New York. And when it did, that was uh, the end of our uh, partnership. Uh, once that investigation began, I discontinued any communication with him. I didn't want to create any perception of, of obstruction of justice. So I wanted to investigation the carriage course. And, uh, and that's when our partnership ended. In the book, you detail specifically how many times Phil bet $110,000, how many times he bet $220,000, how many, you know, 43 bets he placed on a specific day in June. Are all of these play, you know, are these plays you guys were partnering on or are these just individual plays that, that he was making at that time? Well, uh, let, me, let me say something. I have no problem whatsoever with Phil or anybody else betting on sports. I have no problem with the amount of money they better than anything else. It's their money. They can do whatever they want to do with it. The reason that I put that in the book was because I wanted to, you know, to me, life's all about one thing, credibility. Either you have it or you don't have it. Either you're truthful or you're not truthful. And in Shelton's book, it came out and disclosed the fact that he lost $40 million. And then later on, he came out and he said, yeah, I lost $40 million. But clearly, he didn't really come clean about the entire thing. So I felt we needed to really set the record straight and tell the truth there. So we entered all this stuff in there. And. I had a five-year betting relationship with him, uh, and all the bets we make are—I run my business like a business. I mean, I have to I have to have detailed records for the IRS. I uh, have been audited, and, and so every bet we make, it's whoever we make it with, the time we make it, whether we win or lose, and the amounts of money. So we had all the detailed bets on everything that we did. After our partnership ended, and before I wrote this book, I ran into two other guys who had been doing business with them going back to 1995. And I was completely unaware of that. If I'd been aware of it prior to starting the partnership, I would have never had a partnership with him. But I learned that he started this in 1995 with two other guys, and they had they also had detailed records. So part of the bets in there are bets from the relationship he had with them that Arma Katan uh, and myself uh, saw the detail records. Arvin uh, grilled these people like he wouldn't believe and, and, and got records that are indisputable. And so part of them come from that. And the other part come from his relationship he had with me. Now, uh, all the bets he made with him, with them, I'm sure were bets that, that he made. Some of the bets he had with me is what happened after we lost the bookmakers. There was no one to bet. So he asked me if I would make bets on games for him. It would benefit me if I did because the bookmakers I was struggling to keep 
if I could give them other bets besides my bets, it meant to me I could keep those accounts longer. So the understanding was if there was a game that I wasn't against and he wanted to bet on something such as that and it had no conflict whatsoever with what I was doing, I would place the bet for it. And some of those bets are actually those bets. Uh, not many, but there are some. And uh, so it's made up of bets that he and I made as partners. It's bets. It's made up of bets I placed for him at his request uh, to other to, to the bookmakers that I was betting. And it's made up of the detail records these other two gentlemen brought forward that went from 1995 until I think they ended in 2007 or eight or some of them were at the same time that he was doing business with me that I was unaware of. And that's how I ended up getting in the money laundering investigation because it involved these two other gentlemen it had nothing to do with me. And actually one of those gentlemen went to federal prison for it for accepting his $2.8 million wire transfer that he asked the guy to do as a favor. So that, that money laundering investigation was, do you mind just laying out the details of that? Again, you, you had nothing to do with that, but that was Phil settling a, a gambling debt through another person uh, that ended up getting uh, investigated. Well, these other two fellows that I'm referring to, uh, they had set him up some accounts, especially after they were actually the same accounts that he and I had after the company and he and I off because we were winning. He, he goes back and, uh, and he'd had two, these two accounts uh, reactivated through these two guys. And, and they were accounts that he had before. They're, they're the guys that originally got him for him to start with. And I think he owed $2.8 million is what he owed these offshore books. So same time to pay them, his banks wouldn't, wouldn't, my understanding is his bank wouldn't wire the money to these offshore bookmakers. So he asked this guy, he wire the money to him and, uh, and he would pay the offshore bookmakers. And the guy uh, agreed to do it as a favor and uh, he wired him $2.8 million. Well, money shows up in a bank and uh, the bank turns it in as, as a suspicious activity, which they should have, and they did. That led to an investigation, and uh, investigation included the federal authorities. And uh, bottom line was, it was money laundering. I mean, anytime someone asks you to wire something to someone else to pay someone else, uh, that's money laundering, and uh, <clears throat> that's what that's what it was. What I didn't know at the time is until after I decided to write this book. He'd been doing business with these same people since 1995, so. Although it was, I think, an investigation into the one wire transfer, I don't know how many there were. And this investigation had been going on for a period of time, and I know they were deeply concerned with it. What happened uh, is when my case came along, the uh, SEC wanted to interview Phil about some stock he bought, and he took the Fifth Amendment. And when I learned he took the Fifth Amendment, I confronted him and asked him, you know, why? Just tell the truth. And he said, well... You know, my lawyers are concerned that they'll ask me questions about, you know, the other investigation. I said, well, I would just explain to them, I, I'm here to answer questions about this stock transaction, and I, and I wouldn't answer any of the questions. He said, well, um, my lawyers uh, think I'm, you know, they may force me to. I said, well, you're making a huge mistake. And uh, anyway, he chose to take the Fifth Amendment with them. And, uh, and of course, the investigation continued. I think that had a large part to do with it. I mean, why would you take the Fifth Amendment? So anyway, eventually, uh, rest of the stories in the book, I, I went into detail to explain it, but as the case went forward, uh, this issue that he had with the money laundering, uh, with these other two gentlemen, he hired an attorney in uh, Washington, D.C., a very influential attorney, 
they were able to work out a settlement. And the settlement, uh, his money laundering case went away as far as he was concerned. The other gentleman went to prison. And uh, there was a public statement issued that uh, he gave back almost a million dollars was made in a stock transaction. They had a press conference, and because of Phil and Phil's celebrity, the story went viral. It went all over the world, and uh, anyone who looked at it, uh, you're going to come to one or two conclusions. Either he's an innocent victim in an insider trading case, or he's guilty and he bought his way out. Neither one were true, but the bottom line was, from a public opinion standpoint, it made me look completely guilty. So the impression was out there of, with public opinion. Why would somebody give a million dollars back in a, in a financial transaction if, if you'd done nothing wrong or someone had done something wrong? And it was devastating to me because uh, I couldn't say anything at the time publicly. And uh, so when I went to trial in New York City, it was, on, it was in the New York newspapers. Everybody was anticipating Phil was going to come forward and testify in the case. Well, he'd already given two interviews to the FBI, he told me. And uh, he'd emphatically denied that I'd ever given him any insider, any insider information. But the public perception was out there. And when we, were, when we were doing the jury selection, the jurors, a number of them, asked if Phil Mickelson was going to testify in the trial. We believed that he would come and testify because he had told us he would. I knew the government prosecutors weren't going to call him because he had already been interviewed by the FBI and he told them that he didn't get any inside information. So when it came time for him to come forward and testify, his lawyers told my lawyers he's taking the Fifth Amendment. Well, if he takes, if someone tells you they're taking the Fifth Amendment, you, you cannot call them to testify. Well, then... In the 11th hour, I, I contacted him to meet your friend because he and I couldn't have any contact. And uh, meet your friend contacted him, and I just asked him, I begged him to just issue a public statement. And he said he would. Of course, he never issued a public statement. So in my trial, there was only one witness against me, and we impeached his credibility countless times. If Phil had come forward and testified and just simply told the truth that I never gave him any inside information. Do you mind if I interrupt you here, Billy, just to just to set the scene for the listeners for the 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 Dean Foods? You know, you guys amongst your betting, you guys are also having you have conversations. You had did some. Eric, can you tell us a little bit about kind of the stock trading aspect of your relationship, information sharing, and as well as kind of your history with Dean Foods, your purchases, and and because I, I again. Surface knowledge for a lot of people is that uh, you guys got a tip on Dean Foods and you acted on it. That's that's what people know. But there's more to the story from from what's in the book. First and foremost, I owned Dean, uh, Dean Foods stock uh, for 10 years off and on. Uh, the way that Dean Foods conversation came up with Phil, he and I played golf one day at Rancho Santa Fe. We got finished. We were in the, in the, in the grill. We were having lunch. And he asked me, he said, out of all the stocks you own, which are the two you like the best? And I told him uh, a company named Hamlin Pharmaceuticals that was a San Diego biotech company and uh, Dean Foods. And uh, I told him that I've been invested in it for 10 years and uh, they had three divisions. One was a, uh, it was a division that had large amount of growth and the stock was undervalued uh, because of the, of the value of this division, White Wave. So he goes home and uh, buys stock in Dean Foods. I mean, it's just that simple. Um, but more importantly, I told him, he and I had lunch in July. The company reported earnings in May. And in May, they were asked questions about spending off uh, 
uh, white wave. The way the questions were answered, it was obvious that everyone believed they were going to spin off white wave. Two years prior to that, in 2010, the company made a public statement. They hired an outside agency to come in and do an evaluation about spinning off white wave. When they announced they were going to spin off white wave, nobody was surprised. It wasn't a matter of if, it was just a matter of when, because the company discussed this publicly two years prior to that, and they were being uh, asked by shareholders to, to spin it off to unlock this value. In May of that year, uh, Deutsche Bank came out with a with a report predicting they were going to spin it off. Jim Cramer was talking about it on CNBC. Well, they had to, they, they had public, uh, they reported publicly in May of that year. And again, uh, the CEO, uh, if you listen to the recording, it, it's very apparent that White Wave's on the board to be spun off. Well, July, two months later, we had this conversation. There's a huge drought in the United States. Corn prices have gone through the roof. Their cost of doing business had gone up substantially. The stock got hammered because of this drought. And the stock was actually down below to what I'd paid for it in May when I bought it. And I told Phil, I said, well, look, if they spend this company off, you're going to make four or five bucks a share. If they don't spend it off, uh, this drought's going to end. And uh, I think the stock's really cheap anyway. So he went home, bought some stock. A month or so later, they announced earnings. They confirmed they were going to spin off White Wave. He sold his stock, made whatever he made, $950,000 million. I didn't sell a share of mine. I bought another million shares and paid the additional $4.50 a share. But that's the only stock conversations uh, that he and I ever had. We never had any before or since. And uh, I really don't know, I don't know what prompted them. But, I mean, he just happened to bring it up. I, I recommended those two companies, and uh, he bought stock in, in Dean Foods, nothing more, nothing less. And that's what you, you say in the book and you said here as well that, you know, once you were investigated for the insider trading aspect of this, you believe that Phil's testimony would have been enough to keep you out of prison. And, and that if he would have taken the stand and said that there was no inside information you guys were trading on, you would have been able to avoid the 30, month, uh, 30 months you just spent in Pensacola prison. It was actually 31. I believe you're in prison at that month. Makes I a big understand difference. that. <laughs> But, but yeah, there's really only one witness against me in this trial, and you'd have to understand uh, the circumstances with that. This guy, two years before this, had gone to the SEC and given a voluntary interview and denied emphatically that he'd ever given me any inside information. And then after his interview, the FBI then learned that he had, he had embezzled money from a better women's charity. He had filed a fraudulent tax return. He'd actually given inside information to someone else. So two years later, he goes and, he, and you know, he's looking at a lot of time in prison, so he decides to change his story. He goes and hires a former federal prosecutor of New York to represent him who had just left the Southern District, who had worked with these same prosecutors who prosecuted me for eight years. And uh, that became his lawyer. They had to have 29 proper sessions Proffer sessions, they had to have 29 meetings with the prosecutors to get their story straight. That was the only witness against me. Well, my attorneys did a magnificent job. We caught him in 30, at least 30 lies uh, on a witness stand. He had no credibility. Now, the biggest mistake I made in the trial, I should have testified. Uh, my lawyers believed. They said, look, if the jury can't believe this guy, they can't convict you. And uh, nobody could believe him. And for sure, if Phil had come and testified, here's Phil Mickelson with his celebrity. He came forward and testified. 
that I never gave him any inside information. They're going to have heard from two people, this guy here that I just described, and they're going to hear from Phil Mickelson. In retrospect, the biggest mistake I made was myself not testifying. But if Phil had testified, I am as sure as I am looking at you, I would have never gone to prison. Can, going back to to some of of Phil's betting, you say in the book that he wagered over a billion dollars, uh, you know, over the last several decades. The only person you know that has wagered more than that is you. What do you see out of out of Phil's gambling habits? I, I think there's a you know a story to be told there on how it has led to potentially a shakeup in the entire professional golf world. Uh, but you you say in there that uh, you saw some of your younger self in Phil, and you had to offer some, him some quiet counsel at some point. What was that counsel? Well, I mean, clearly, uh, in, anytime you've got something that your emotions are controlling your decisions, uh, you're not in charge. Phil's an action man, uh, just like I'm an action man, and we all, uh, d- different people uh, have different you know, things that, that kind of get their adrenaline up, so to speak. And uh, the thing that I kind of saw with Phil is, uh, I can say this, and the same things that I saw in myself. Uh, when he got a loser, he uh, he wasn't in control of his emotions as much as uh, he should have been, or or uh, or I was actually when I was younger. And uh, and so as a result, I'm I'm sure he probably lost a lot more money than uh, than he intended to lose. But uh, what happens, and it's not it's it's not only going to happen to Phil. It's going to happen to a lot of people betting sports. I don't care what level you bet at. If you get loser and you start chasing losses and you you quit using good, sound, solid decision making and in, in, in your bets and you don't play within your means, uh, you're going to end up having some uh, heartache in your life uh, and you're going to have some problems. And gambling can be just as addictive as drugs. It can be as addictive as alcohol. Make no mistake about it. And uh, and. I do think Phil probably had uh, an addiction to gambling. Uh, I had an addiction to gambling. And, uh, you know, when you got an addiction to something, you're not totally in control of, uh, of your decisions. You, sometimes you make bad decisions, a lot of them, and I did. When you look at, at the totals that, that you outline in there compared to Phil's income um, and his, his celebrity and his endorsement deals, is it alarming? Is he is he betting too much money if you look at this, or can he afford this lifestyle on top of – you know, taxes and, and private airplanes and, and things like that. Did you did you get a sense that he was getting himself in trouble with the amounts that he was losing? First of all, I think it's his business to start with him, him and his families. Uh, but but second of all, no, I don't think he was playing beyond his means. I mean, Bill Mickelson was making 50, 60 million bucks a year. He made a tremendous amount of money. I mean, he was worth $250 million when he and I were, we had a betting room relationship together and he was earning a lot of money so everything's relative you know i mean the thing that that concerns me more than anything was legalized gambling is you know a, a guy that's sitting in his basement uh, someplace in indiana or kentucky and he's playing a blackjack uh, over something he's got his last 200 dollars he's lost his life savings is that that's that's what concerns me more than Phil Mickelson losing $100 million betting sports. He, he might have lost $100 million betting sports, which was $200 million after taxes or whatever in expenses, but he still made another $800 million or whatever he made. So, I, I, no, I, I, and frankly, like I said, I, everybody's a little different here. It's his business, wherever he did. As long as he reported properly with his taxes and, uh, uh, you know, I understand he's a, public figure and people want to criticize him for that. 
I'm not one of those people. Uh, I don't I don't criticize him at all for that. And like and answer your question, uh, I think he can afford what he does. And uh, but uh, looks like to me he's getting along pretty good. If I the the one the area that it, it may cross over for a lot of sports fans is the incident you allege in the book that he wanted to place a four hundred thousand dollar wager on the twenty twelve United States Ryder Cup team through you. What what was your reaction when you got that phone call, uh, and what was that conversation like? I couldn't believe it. Uh, I, I was uh, by that time I'd known him for a period of time, and up until that time there had never even remotely been any kind of discussion about betting on golf anybody else betting on golf or anything else and if i mean it's obvious for anyone to see phil gets pretty excited about things and he gets pretty charged up and he can get pretty high or pretty low but so he's up at the Ryder cup in Medina. he calls me up he wants to bet four hundred thousand dollars on the u.s team to win the Ryder cup and uh I was just, I couldn't, couldn't believe it. I said, uh, man, have you lost your mind? And uh, actually, I used a few explicit words. And uh, and I said, don't you know what happened to Pete Rose? I said, you know, you're viewed to be a modern-day modern Arnold Palmer. I said, you know, don't even, you know, I said, I don't want any part of it. And 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 he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm fairly confident he came to his, his senses, and he uh, probably never made the bet. I didn't say he ever made the bet. I just said he called me, and he attempted to make the bet. And uh I think he just got probably carried away with uh, the moment. He was so sure they were going to win, and uh, but I don't think he was thinking when he called me. And he and, and because the ramifications, if I'd have did that for him, and it could have ever been proven, his career would have been over. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think it was just an error in judgment. I think he got excited, uh, but it happened. There's no question it happened. It's the truth, and but. Before then or after then, I've never ever seen, he never mentioned to me about betting a nickel for him on golf, and I've never heard of him ever betting a nickel on golf other than betting on himself on a golf course and and, uh, and a man-to-man bet. That's what, yeah, he had a, some creative phrasing in his statement he made this week saying, yeah, I never bet on the Ryder Cup, but it, he didn't deny that he, he attempted to bet uh, through you, which, uh, yeah, that seems to be some of his creative phrasing lately. <laughs> We're all cut out with a different cut of cloth. I, I, I don't understand, you know, that. I, I think if he'd just square up with people and, you know, uh, uh, instead of saying, okay, I never bet on golf. I mean, uh, again, like I say, we're all cut out of a little, little different cut of cloth. I know what I would have said. Uh, look, yeah, I called. I was excited. Uh, frankly, it was a mistake, and uh, I realized it, and I never did it before. I never did it since. I mean, to me uh, – but again, like I said, everybody answers things differently. But he answered it correctly in his press conference. He never, he never bet on it. Uh, I never said he bet on it. How did you guys leave your relationship? What's the last uh, last time you spoke, or kind of, uh, you know, you you talk a little bit about in the book. There was a, a gambling debt he had towards you that that lingered for quite some time, and uh, it obviously ends pretty awkwardly with you know him not taking the stand to testify on your behalf. But how have you guys left it? Have you had any communications? Well, when I went to prison for thirty one months. I had some family issues. I have a son who's severely intellectually challenged, and he almost died two or three times. And uh, every time that came up, uh, you know, a lot of things go through your mind, and Phil not testifying was one of those. And then then I had a daughter who committed suicide. That's something I'll never forgive me for. Has he attempted to to mend the relationship at all, or is there is there any, any, yeah, any help there? Uh, I was playing golf at Rancho Santa Fe one day with some friends, and uh, I was coming off the range, headed to the cart, and uh, he walked up to me. And 
this is Claire Busca, and uh, we had a, a brief conversation, and he told me how it was how good it was to see me back on the golf course, and uh, and uh, how glad he was, and he went on to say, well, you know, the reason I didn't testify in the Southern District of New York, he said, I don't know what Tom Davis told you. I said, no one asked you to testify to what Tom Davis told me. I said, don't give me the bullshit. I said, all, all anyone wanted you to do was testify to what I told you. That's the only thing you could testify to. And uh, then I made him aware of the fact that my daughter committed suicide in prison, and he said he was sorry. And uh, that's the last time I spoke to him. Uh, you know, the thing is, uh, when I went to prison, uh, before, first of all, when the issue came up and I was indicted, he, he held his press conference and uh, said he was going to be a lot more careful about the people he associated himself with, referring to me. And uh, But at the same time, he had just gone into a partnership with Brian Zuroff, and they had started the show, The Match. And Brian's a convicted fellow. I know Brian. I'm only, I'm only making the point he's a convicted fellow because just to show you how big a hypocrite Bill is. He has a press conference. He's distancing himself from me because I'm a convicted fellow, but at the same time, you know, he's in a partnership with a convicted felon. And uh, so anyway, uh, I was in prison. It was difficult. It was difficult because of my son and my daughter. And I, 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 although I'd like to, I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive him for that. What has, uh, you know, you, we don't probably don't have time today to detail all the, of, of what life was like in prison. But what, what, what we don't know, what the readers don't know is what has life been like out, outside of prison for you now that you've been out um, for some time, how have you, how do you, how have, do you view the world differently and how have, uh, the last few years been? Yeah. I mean, we all think we know and understand what freedom means. Uh, you check into a, a prison and you lose a hundred percent of all your freedom. And then you really appreciate all the men and women who have died, you know, and wars to defend our freedom. But, uh, I went to prison. There was nothing at all good about prison. There was only one positive thing about prison is I ended up mentoring two dozen men in prison. And, uh, that was very positive, uh, but it also gave me a completely different outlook on what prison was all about. Uh, like everybody else, you know, you know, there's prisons, but unless it directly involves you or a loved one, you really don't know what prison does to someone or their family. And uh, so, mentoring these two dozen men, it uh, it made when I came out, I was determined to kind of do something to make the prison system better. Now, don't misunderstand me. Uh, we need prisons. There are people who need to be in prison. But a lot of people who come out of prison uh, deserve a second chance. And for those who do, I think we as a society need to be, we need to provide that. So when I got out of prison, I started working with Harry Reid. Uh, Harry Reid was a good friend of mine. And uh, uh, although he was retired, he still had a tremendous amount of influence. And, and uh, unfortunately, he passed away with pancreatic cancer before, before we could get it done. What I wanted to do was to put vocational schools in the federal prisons where someone who was deserving could, could go there and get a trade, an electrician, a plumber, an air conditioner repair, something such as that. That way they could go home, they could have a job, uh, and I think it could possibly have a generational change. Uh, the children's father would no longer be a career criminal. They would be... Uh, electrician or plumber or something like that and and maybe the children may follow that footstep instead of that of a career criminal well senator reed died i got introduced to uh, a re-entry program in the las vegas uh, a, a federal a prison re-entry program is called hope for prisoners and actually the 
former sheriff of Clark County, Bill Young is the one who made me aware of it. I met this guy, John Ponder, and he started this in 2012. They only have a 7% recidivism rate. And, and this is over years. It's really unbelievable. And uh, John and John and Susan and I, we gave them some financial support and they've added facilities. And, and then uh, we've recently given them some additional financial support. We work with the governor, Governor Lombardo and the, and the correctional, the head of corrections area. And we're putting vocational schools in the state prisons in Nevada. And uh, I can't tell you how proud I am of that. And I'm proud to be associated with Hope for Prisoners. Well, I listen, I could, I could ha get uh, stories from you for, for hours. And I'm sure I want to be conscious of your time. I, I flagged about a dozen stories that we haven't even gotten to from the book. So I would encourage uh, listeners to go get it. There's a whole heck of a lot more that we haven't covered in this one. But if I had to pick one, I want you to tell the listeners a little bit about how, again, you, you detail a lot of stuff in the book about how you gained edges in different kinds of betting. I did not know that edges could be gained in roulette. Uh, I want you to tell us a little bit about uh, how, how you how you gained an edge in roulette and then had some success in that at times. Sure. It was in the 80s. And, uh, you know, Las Vegas is full of all types of folks. And uh, so basically a couple of guys came to me and uh, with this idea that they had a system to beat roulette. They wanted me to put up the money and any money we won, we'd split. I didn't do the deal with them. I, I saw what I saw what it was for. They were a couple of con men. So. But I, it did intrigue uh, my interest, and I bought a roulette wheel. I disassembled it, and I realized that roulette wheels are, are mechanical devices, no different than a car or, or anything else. And if not properly maintained, they could basically end up creating an imbalance in the wheel. So I started taking numbers on wheels. I would take about 3,000 numbers as a, uh, a small sampling, and then I had a little program I could run the program and see if there was a tentative bias. And if we thought then, if I thought there was, then I'd go back and get say another 27,000 numbers to run a, a bigger program. And as a result, I found, basically I found out all roulette wheels are biased. Uh, not many are biased enough in order to be able to overcome the house odds, but there were a few. And the ones I identified that I felt like they were biased enough that I could overcome the house odds. Uh, I played those roulette wheels and I bet on them. And uh, fortunately, uh, my theory was right. And I won some, some, I won a substantial amount of money playing roulette for a period of time until all the, all the casinos ended up buying new roulette wheels. And then that was the end of that. That was that's one of the many uh, stories that's detailed in in the book, and we again we didn't get to a whole heck of a lot of characters that are introduced to, to into this, and uh, some other uh, you know some friends you've made along the way, some enemy enemies you've made along the way, and uh, like I said, I think this is either an hour episode or a ten hour episode. Anything else, it, <laughs> it would be hard to do it all justice. But like I told you before we started going, I don't think this, I don't think your life's a movie. It's a it's a multi season Netflix series. It'd be hard to to get it all in in, in the course of. Uh, uh, of one movie. And, uh, I, I, I want to thank you for, for spending some time with us and for writing the book and for, uh, uh, sharing some stories with us today. I know you've had a probably a hectic week with the launch this week and we greatly, greatly appreciate your time. Hope to do it again sometime. Like I said, we got some more stories to get from you. Well, thank you. Uh, I really, really enjoy your program. I love what you guys are doing and, uh, just keep it up. I'm a big fan. Thank you, Billy. Cheers. And we will chat soon. Thank you. Appreciate it. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's 
Better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than.